This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Just weeks before the presidential contest in 2020, the surfacing of Hunter Biden's laptop posed a mortal threat to Joe Biden's chances of getting elected. Incriminating emails contained therein offered compelling evidence that the father was complicit in his son's elaborate influence-peddling schemes involving nefarious foreign actors who were paying millions of dollars for access and promises of favor. So the Biden campaign team and Democratic operatives, with a key assist from partisans at the FBI, applied pressure on the social media giant Twitter to block the story. The predominantly liberal staff at the tech company happily capitulated. They invented a farcical pretext that the laptop was hacked, strictly forbid any mention of it on their site, suspended the account of the New York Post that had broken the story, and punished anyone who dared share it by banishing them from Twitter. These disgraceful actions constitute unwarranted censorship at its ugliest. And it worked like a charm. Joe Biden was elected president. Attorney, Fox News legal analyst, and two-time New York Times bestselling author. This is The Brief with Greg Jarrett. Billionaire investor Michael Pinto has a warning for you. Don't listen to anyone who tells you how bad the crash will be and when it exactly will happen. Nobody knows. But the CEO of Wells Fargo warns the worst is yet to come for Americans. Pay attention to the economic data. Inflation is at a 40-year high. And make no mistake about it, the recession is real, no matter how the White House tries to change the definition. That's why Bloomberg, Goldman Sachs, and Jim Cramer are all calling for gold to surge. Gold and silver have historically moved opposite the stock market and in the long term can preserve your purchasing power. Call 800 809-8500 and Lear Capital, the number one rated gold company, will present the same trusted options they have been giving successful investors since 1997. At Lear Capital, most IRA rollovers qualify for no IRA fees for up to five years. Their current incentive offers up to $15,000 in bonus silver for well-qualified new customers. A three-minute call can protect your portfolio with the power of real physical gold. Call 800-809-8500 today. Again, that's 800-809-8500 and tell them Greg Jarrett sent you. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Brief. I'm Greg Jarrett. Elon Musk, the new owner of Twitter, has now wisely resolved to pull back the veil of secrecy by releasing the so-called 
Twitter files. They expose the insidious machinations of those who suppress the story at the behest and request of others. They're an important window into how powerful entities held sway over America's predominant social media platform to crush a scandal. Musk should be commended for his effort at transparency in order to rebuild squandered trust. The Twitter docs offer a damning indictment of how top executives at that company slanted content moderation decisions to favor and protect Joe Biden to the disadvantage of his political opponent, whom they loathed. Communications show that Twitter acted on a variety of censorship demands by Biden's presidential campaign. There was no credible evidence that the laptop was hacked. Russian involvement was non-existent. The newly liberated files on Twitter prove the company knew it. They voiced concerns internally. Yet they clung to that phony excuse in part because the company's deputy general counsel, James Baker, urged them to do so. Now, Baker, you'll recall, is the same biased character who helped fuel the Russia collusion hoax while serving in an earlier capacity as the FBI's general counsel. He was an eager conduit for the anti-Trump smears conjured up by Hillary Clinton and her Confederates. Under the leadership of Baker, James Comey, Andrew McCabe, and Peter Strzok, the FBI became a cesspool of corruption. The Bureau spied on the Trump campaign, lied to a federal court to gain lawless warrants, and pursued a relentless investigation based on specious allegations that the agency had already discredited but concealed. Armed with lies, they worked sedulously to drive Trump from office. Baker was a natural to join Twitter. His employment there gave the agency an insider to social media. You won't find any emails from the FBI in the Twitter files exhorting the platform to jettison the laptop story. No, bureau officials were a whole lot smarter than that. Instead, they met privately with company executives warning them in advance to expect a bogus story involving Hunter Biden derived from so-called hacked materials. Well, how did the FBI know to issue that sham alert? They weren't prescient. They had special knowledge. The agency seized the laptop in December of 2019. They examined it. They knew it was legitimate. They were shocked by its incendiary value. They correctly feared that its contents, if fully disclosed, would ruin Biden's electoral prospects. The FBI was also spying on Rudy Giuliani, who had a copy of the laptop and was seeking to publish it. So the agency contrived a preemptive deception to convince Twitter to censor the forthcoming story, which it promptly did. The FBI's unconscionable role in burying the details of the laptop is verified in a declaration signed by Twitter's former head of site integrity, Yul Roth. 
and reported exclusively by the New York Post. It's also confirmed by FBI Supervisory Special Agent Elvis Chan during his testimony in a censorship lawsuit brought by two state attorneys general and again reported by the Post. Chan is the one who organized the surreptitious meetings with both Twitter and Facebook to spike the story. It's a violation of the First Amendment for the government to engage in censorship either overtly or covertly. It infringes the freedoms of speech and the press that are embedded in our Constitution's Bill of Rights. While a publicly or privately held company is under no such constraints, the government at all levels is. So this would include the FBI manipulating or coercing companies to behave as proxies to accomplish otherwise prohibited censorship. While Twitter may not be liable per se for First Amendment violations, it is still culpable ethically for trampling on the spirit, the foundation of our hallowed free speech rights. To his great credit, Democrat Congressman Ro Khanna, who represents Silicon Valley, leveled this very argument to Twitter executives when the story first emerged. He complained that the platform's censorship, quote, seems a violation of the First Amendment principles. Kana was right. Cherished principles were at stake here. But Twitter dug in. They refused to yield. There were, of course, other witting accessories who actively covered up the Hunter Biden laptop story, an unscrupulous group of 51 former Intel officials that included John Brennan, James Clapper, Michael Morrell, Leon Panetta, and Mike Hayden penned a public letter announcing that the laptop emails had, quote, all the classic earmarks of a Russian information operation, end of quote. Well, the statement itself was disinformation. None of the 51 signators even examined the emails or the laptop. They simply made it up. None of them have since had the decency to apologize or retract their unfounded claim. Their singular goal at the time was to protect Joe Biden, even at the expense of the truth. In fact, three days later, Biden himself relied on their lie during a pivotal presidential debate with Trump, mimicking it as gospel. Well, the mainstream media also aided and abetted candidate Biden. They did everything in their power to scrub or ignore the story, never bothering to verify the laptop's authenticity or confirm its contents. Reporters at major networks and the nation's leading newspapers were so determined to help Biden get elected that they labeled it a non-scandal, fake news, and yes, Russian disinformation. It was media malpractice in the extreme. Not that any of them care about such things as objectivity and fairness. No, those are mere nuisances. 17 months after the story broke, the New York Times finally admitted that the laptop 
was real. Reluctantly, so did the Washington Post. NBC News followed suit a couple of months later, but it took CBS more than two years to do the same. The uncomfortable fact is that too many journalists didn't want to know the truth, much less report it. Their epic failure is an embarrassing testament to the political prejudice that has infected today's press. It's no wonder, then, that media figures are now viciously attacking the Twitter files, Elon Musk, and reporter Matt Taibbi, who reviewed and summarized the documents. Instead of reflecting on their own moral bankruptcy, if not incompetence, the media wants to shoot the messengers. It is common for political campaigns to lobby journalists for favorable coverage. And in today's pervasive social media environment, technology platforms are frequent lobbying targets. Indeed, the Twitter files reveal that the Democratic National Committee, the DNC, requested that conservative critics, such as actor James Woods, be booted from their site. Twitter complied and also banned other names on the DNC hit list. The Biden campaign employed the identical pressure tactics, kicking it into overdrive when the laptop story materialized. If these censorship demands continued into the new administration once Joe Biden took office, as the Twitter communications indicate, this would be an egregious violation of the First Amendment. Congress has a duty to investigate whether the president and his acolytes have shredded the Constitution for political gain. Joining me now to talk about it on The Brief is Brian Finch. He's a cybersecurity lawyer, Washington, D.C., an experienced attorney on social media issues and ethical standards for big tech companies. He holds a bachelor's, master's, J.D. degree, graduating from George Washington University Law School. And Brian, thanks so much for being here. Let's begin with just some of the basics. Uh, you know, censorship violates the First Amendment when the government suppresses stories or information. Private companies, even publicly held corporations, they have no such obligations. And of course, political campaigns uh, that are always uh, seemingly seeking to uh, censor negative stories, that doesn't constitute government action either. Uh, so expand on that, if you would, Brian, in the context of what Twitter did to the New York Post story on Hunter Biden's laptop. Right. So, And you've got it exactly right, Greg, with respect to the First Amendment issues. What, what Twitter did here is it weren't transparent. Uh, at the end of the day about what they were doing. And you're, you're absolutely right with respect to companies having the the freedom to make a decision as to what they're going to suppress, what they're going to promote, et cetera. You have all sorts of algorithms, especially in, in you know the new social media age, et cetera. And what Twitter did here was that it decided that there was sufficient information at its belief that this Hunter Biden laptop was actually a um, 
possibly quite possibly Russian disinformation. So it decided to suppress links, suppress stories related to the Biden laptop. And what has been interesting is how it came about that decision. Uh, and that's part of the crux of the debate here and part of the the dissent over what Twitter has done, both on the left and the right, which I think, Greg, is really important to note. Even Congressman Ro Khanna, who's the, you know, the left of the left, uh, Democrat from Silicon Valley, he just wrote in an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal that he was unhappy with what Twitter did here uh, because it was the type of suppression of information that you wouldn't expect from companies because they weren't transparent about what they were doing or why they were doing it. Yeah, I, I think that Rokana, uh, as I mentioned in the intro, should be commended. He represents Silicon Valley, so he at, obviously has a, a big interest in this. And he was apparently the only Democrat who contacted Twitter at the time of the post story, forcefully argued that censoring the story was just fundamentally wrong. And he pointed out to Twitter, look, I'm an ardent Biden supporter, but blocking the story, quote, seems a violation of the First Amendment principles. And the key word there, as you know, Brian, is principles. And you're right, in the Wall Street Journal op-ed, he elaborates. uh, It's titled, Twitter's Duty to Protect Free Speech. Uh, Talk to us a little bit more about that duty and those principles. It may not be a per se violation of the First Amendment, but you're violating important, cherished principles. Right. And this this is really interesting. This is different than going to, say, a website I frequent, like National Review, where you know that certain stories are going to be framed in a particular way or certain issues aren't going to be covered as much as they might be on other websites like the nation or Vox or, you know, and pick your, pick your left-wing publication. Right. What Twitter did here uh, and what Rokana alleges with respect to the first amendment principles is that it was not allowing fulsome sharing of information. It was, it was putting a finger on the scales of the free market and the free sharing of information. And, as we both point out, this was not a violation of the law per se, but it was a violation of the principles. And when Twitter holds itself out as in, uh, you know, the, the new uh, corner in the American Main Street where people can share their ideas and, you know, there, there's always some restrictions on speech, time, place, manner, etc. But generally speaking, there's very little type, um, you know, speech is encouraged and Twitter here decided for whatever reason that this was a story that should not be shared on its platform or should be downplayed significantly on its platform. And as Elon Musk and Matt Taibbi uh, and others are, are showing now, there were there seemed to be a lot of ad hoc decisions behind that. And, you know, we can raise questions about the motivations of the people who did it. But it was just that decision making process here was was opaque. And I think that's where Roe, Kana and others are bringing in this notion of free First Amendment principles versus yeah. the law and, and the violations or the uh, the crossing of the barriers, per se. Yeah, and we have to remember that uh, Twitter's original uh, purpose, as they stated, was to be a forum for the free exchange of ideas and information. Um, and, and yet it wasn't quite so free. We're learning mm-hmm. from these these Twitter files. I'm reminded of Supreme Court Justice Louis Brandeis, who championed the counter-speech doctrine 
and you know he wrote the remedy to be applied is more speech, not enforced silence, meaning censorship. And decades later, Justice Kennedy uh, repeated it in a very different way. He said the remedy for speech that is false is speech that is true. So we don't suffocate speech we don't like or stories that may be negative or even untrue. We counter them with more and better speech, don't we? We do. Uh, and this is, it's, it's a very interesting situation, Greg, in the sense that, you know, we live in a world now where the First Amendment lives, you have legal protections, but the consequences for counter speech, and even for truth, sometimes from a social perspective, from a corporate perspective are quite significant. Uh, at the end of the day, this whole notion of quote, cancellation, of people, and even you know, now we when we're talking about Twitter cancellation of publications and its its ability to be cross platformed is is really significant in the demands that uh, individuals and perhaps a loud minority of individuals will say, well, we shouldn't do business with this platform because it's serving as a as a um, a mimeograph for. Uh, all sorts of misleading or harmful or hateful speech or things that can't be verified, et cetera. We're living in that world right now. And so we seem to be walking away from those principles that you mentioned from, you know, really some very liberal Supreme Court justices. Uh, Justice Brandeis was no shrinking violet and certainly no champion of right-wing ideals. But this notion that, you know, now we live in a world where counter speech can't be continenced because it's, uh, it can cause immediate harm and uh, cause all sorts of significant issues. Uh, you know, we seem to be walking away from that, you know, focusing here on the left, but it happens on the right at times as well. And so it's it's very disturbing uh, and, and unfortunate the way this played out. And again, I think it really comes down to to someone like me from a, from a legal perspective, looking at this and saying that this is, you know, once again, Twitter was within its rights to do what it did, but it did it in a way that, uh, you know, just didn't allow sunshine to, to be allowed to uh, reach all of the process making here. And that's what Elon Musk is doing now. Uh, and people can then make judgments whether ultimately it was justified or not. But that, that uh, cloak of invisibility on what was occurring in the decision making process, I think, is really the rub here. So uh, there is one thing I want to make clear to our audience. The Biden campaign under the Twitter files that we've seen so far, and there may be more. Well, Musk says there will be more. The Biden campaign appears to have applied pressure on Twitter to block the story, but Joe Biden wasn't in office at the time. He was a private citizen running for president. So, you know, that's not government action violating the First Amendment with censorship. But at the same time, there is now evidence that in the weeks before the Post story, in 2020 about the laptop. The FBI uh, held weekly meetings with Twitter and was warning executives that there's going to be a story coming out about Hunter Biden based on, said the uh, FBI, hacked materials. Of course, the materials weren't hacked at all, but Twitter immediately reacted to that very specific warning by the FBI. They killed the story uh, from its platform. And the FBI, of course, Brian, is the government. So if it can be shown that bureau officials did this, uh, not for national security reasons, but for political purposes, 
for example, to help Joe Biden in the election by using surrogates at Twitter to censor a story, might that be a First Amendment violation, the government acting to censor? If the government acts to censor, then yes, you start getting into First Amendment issues. But, you know, you raised a a critical comment there, which is that was this a national security issue or not? And so, look, I'm not here to defend or support the FBI in any way, shape or form. You know, I do think it is it is important to note that, you know, after what happened in 2016 and ongoing uh, allegations, including allegations that the, not just the Russian government, but the Chinese government are purveying misinformation, manipulating social media statistics, et cetera. You know, it's, it's not wrong for the FBI and other components of the intelligence community to be concerned about the national security aspects of interfering with an election. What, what, you know, will likely happen here, particularly now with a Republican Congress, is that you'll get a fulsome investigation to determine whether or not this actually was motivated by political leanings or by national security. And I think that's that's the rub that people need to get down to and see what actually was the motivation here at the end of the day. It can appear one way or the other based on what we've seen at this point. But as you know, Greg, there's always a story behind the story. Right. Uh, right. And when it comes to uh, campaigns, uh, I feel pretty confident in saying this wouldn't be the first time a presidential campaign leaned on whether it was a newspaper, a news reporter, or now a social media company to suppress or promote particular pieces of information. And it won't be the last time either. Right. Let's, let's As I mentioned in my introduction, it's fairly common for political campaigns, including presidential campaigns, to you know lobby for favorable treatment and mm. to try to uh, get rid of negative stories. But, you know, when the government does it, it's, it's a different constitutional issue. Absolutely. Let me ask you this. The, the Democratic National Committee uh, also appears to have been involved in a broader effort. Documents in the Twitter file show the DNC gave to the social media executives a list of conservatives they wanted removed or banned from Twitter. Um it may have happened. Actor James Wood, uh, for instance, was on the list and, you know, he gets banned from Twitter and, and he has vowed to sue. He said so on, on Friday night when the story came out. Would, would someone like him have a viable legal case either against Twitter or the DNC or both? And if so, what's the cause of action? So that's a really interesting question to ask. Uh, you know, I certainly think he could survive an initial you know, motion to dismiss phase on this and saying that there was some sort of violation of the terms uh, of use or potentially some state laws with respect to equal access, uh, that type of thing, uh, potentially some First Amendment. But whether he'd actually succeed or not is an interesting question, because then you'd have to ask, you know, Twitter, again, ultimately is a private business. Uh, at the end of the day and can make decisions on a regular basis on who it who it decides that can have access and utilize its platform on a regular basis or just even have access in general or not. Uh, and so there would be lots of discussions about, you know, how, how do you treat Twitter in these circumstances? Is it truly a private company? Or as I mentioned before, is it the Main Street corner that's supposed to have very limited circumstances under which it can ban users? Uh, right. And what does that look like? And what is the appeal process, et cetera? So, you know, the short answer to your question is, do I think that he uh, has a potential viable claim? I, he very well might. Will he succeed? I don't know. It, it depends on where the court 
where he brings these claims and what kinds of laws uh, he ultimately gets to de- determine are applied by the, the court decides to apply in that particular circumstance. And the same would be for the, the DNC as well. Remembering the DNC is not a governmental body at the end of the day. It's a political uh, entity. It's a political party, but it doesn't act with the force of the government. Yeah. Um, as we wrap this up, I, I want to go back to the point you and I were discussing, and that is that in the Twitter files, we see, uh, as Matt Taibbi has pointed out, the Biden presidential campaign team applying some pressure on Twitter. Um, he, but again, he's a private citizen, so he, you know he can do that. It, it's not uh, a First Amendment censorship. Mm-hmm. But if the censorship demands or pressure continued into the new administration once Biden took office, and there's some indication in the Twitter files that that may have occurred, then that would be a violation of the First Amendment because Joe Biden would then be president and his surrogates or acolytes acting on his behalf uh, would arguably be violating the First Amendment censorship. Arguably, yes, unless they can prove, as we uh, pointed out before, that uh, there wasn't a national security case for this. And there right. wasn't some sort of you know, uh, presidential privilege or executive privilege that would allow for this type of communication to Twitter or other social media platforms to say, look, we have clear evidence that this is disinformation. If it was simply political pressure, then yes, the Biden administration has a lot of questions to answer for sure about this. And there will be First Amendment questions that come up. Uh, But, you know, there certainly could be some leeway for the administration to argue at the time it appeared to be a national security issue. So it's one of those things that uh, we lawyers love. It's expensive and protracted. Uh, to determine uh, how this actually happens. And on the government side, it's easier for them to assign people from the Justice Department rather than an individual because you're digging into your own pockets. But uh, it would certainly be a fascinating debate and, and would implicate a lot of larger issues in terms of when can the government ask social media companies to remove certain information or downplay certain information where there may be a, a significant public policy case for doing so. And again, I'm not arguing one way or the other with the Hunter Biden laptop that, that it existed. I'm just saying that this is a question that uh, is one of those unexplored territories that uh, we're going to dive into and may make some really interesting case law from a legal perspective. Indeed. Uh, and we, in fact, may find out more as Elon Musk Uh, has vowed to release uh, even more uh, from the Twitter files about, you know, what was going on with this particular story. And and if so, I may turn to you again, Brian, for more of your expertise. Thanks so much for joining us. My guest has been Brian Finch, cybersecurity lawyer. Again, Brian, thanks so much for joining us on the program. And that's The Brief. I'm Greg Jarrett. Thanks for listening. 